Hello, my name is Paul Gosling, and I have pleasure in welcoming you to this special Hollywood Trust Brexit podcast. As Brexit moves towards its climax in the House of Commons, we are very pleased to bring you an interview with Gregory Campbell, the DUP MP for East Londonderry. I began the interview by asking why the DUP supports Brexit. Well, I think it's an opportunity, probably, well, it's a once-in-a-50-year opportunity uh, for the nation, I suppose, to reclaim its freedom. When you look back at the origins of uh, the UK entering in, and people sometimes forget this, we were taken in without a people's vote uh, because Ted Heath thought it was a good idea. He was very very much a Europhile um, Prime Minister. And then after we were in, was it a couple of years, he decided, he deigned then to allow the people to say if they wanted to stay. And of course, even then there were voices that were siren voices that said, no, no, this is not going to be a European economic community. This is going to evolve into something far greater. And boy, were they right. Uh, You know, whether that was Powell, Ben, from the right and from the left, And when you look back now, you can see how, I wouldn't regard them as prophetic voices, but certainly it it has emerged. Um, And and this whole Euro project is escalating. And um, it's just, I think, an opportunity that we have to grasp with both hands to get out of that Euro mess that is undoubtedly coming down the road at all of us. So your primary concern is about the political institutions. I mean, would you be comfortable if you're outside of the political institutions but still within the single market and the customs union? No, I I think uh, if we're looking long term, if we're looking over the course of the next 40 to 50 years, just the way I've outlined, you know, the last 40 or 50 years, I would be much more comfortable with a a loose amalgam of sovereign national states who had agreed a very... Uh, a, a very operative basis for cooperation and, and whether uh, in trade, commerce, having a loose arrangement through NATO for defence, but not a, a Euro super state, which is what is happening. This is, you know, that when, when Europeans talk about um, the acceptance of diversity within the European uh, Union project, and then you see, you know, they have a, a single European flag, a single European anthem. Now they're talking about a single European army. Um, it, it's quite clear to us the, the direction of travel that it's going. So, and, that, and that's why we were so opposed to the withdrawal agreement, because it was almost a semi-detached arrangement. And uh, a customs union arrangement to us would be very similar to that. But the withdrawal agreement was basically saying we're outside of the political institutions, but leaving in the potential of being inside a, a customs union and single market. So to what extent does that deal with your concerns? Well, it doesn't, uh, it, it doesn't within, the, within the UK as a whole, although I would be less concerned about that than Northern Ireland's uh, position, because it, to us, it put us in an invidious position in that we were still going to be subject to much of, of EU control, even in the withdrawal agreement. And, that, and that's what made it particularly invidious for us. People talked about the best of both worlds. My view is not to dismiss the best of both worlds. I think that is possible. But it's on the other side of the withdrawal agreement. Uh, And by other side, I mean uh, being outside the EU, outside the single market, outside the customs union, but still because of our proximity to the Irish Republic and thereby the EU, we could then have the best of both worlds and that we could still take advantage of whatever trade deals are coming to the UK 
uh, which would be a result of us not being part of of the EU, but still have direct access into the EU. That would be the best of both worlds for us. So you're still keen on the position of having the capacity to have independent trade deals for the UK as a whole, uh, which means that we can't stay within the single market and the customs union if we have the capacity to have our own free trade agreements. Yes. And so what's your solution in terms of how we have a trading relationship with the European Union, uh, have presumably a free trade arrangement with the European Union, but do not have border controls? Explain how that will work. Well, this is what concerns me over the past series of months. There's an innate concentration for entirely understandable reasons about how there would be whatever has to be done either... The concentration seems to be at the border, for whatever reason. The concept, the notion, the phrase, a hard border, has taken on a life of its own. In my view, that has primarily come about as a result of Leo Varadkar's just disgraceful and totally unwarranted sort of waving of the Irish Times from whatever was 1972, where there was a border post blown up by the IRA. Uh, Now... That, to me, not, not, not just in an in EU concept, but certainly there, that gave EU leaders a false, a completely erroneous view of what must be done to avoid a hard border. They had in their mind, because of what he'd done then, they had in their mind that a hard border constituted 1972 border posts possibly being attacked, peace process at risk. That was outrageous unacceptable and is, is not going to happen. He knows it's not going to happen. I know it's not going to happen, but he still did it. Now, that then showed within the minds of ordinary people on the border that it might. And it is nonsense. You know, th- there is no possibility. And I, I've put it in the form of questions. And, I, and I've said this, and I've yet to get an answer. There are four simple, straightforward questions about a hard border. Who is going to install this hard border? Who's going to create it or put it in place or, or whatever it is that it is going to be? Who's going to do that? Is that the EU, the Irish Republic, the WTO? Who is going to do that? Nobody, everybody talks about it but never answers these questions. Who's going to put this in place? Uh, who is going to man it? Who's going to supervise it? How many people are going to be involved in that? How many people are going to be needed to do that? Secondly, uh, or that's the second question. The third question is who's going to pay for that? Presumably those who put it in place. And then fourthly, uh, and I suppose the most fundamental question of all, is that uh, if, if that were in place, how would it be done in such a way as to ensure that people couldn't, across the 300 miles and the 285 crossing points, couldn't avoid it with consummate ease? Those four questions haven't received any answer. It doesn't answer the, the other question of, well, what would it be? Yeah. But when you have two questions that don't seem capable of getting comprehensive answers to, I don't understand why there is a a, a sort of a consummate desire, an all-consuming desire to place the onus on the question of how would this work in the absence of a hard border and not concentrate on... Well, if it didn't, if, if we weren't in that scenario and we moved to a hard border, let's examine what it would be. Yeah, and nobody I'm, ever says what it would be, how it would be controlled and how... Exactly, because I think, I think this, I agree with you, this, uh, this phrase, the hard border, is very unhelpful. Okay. If we talk in terms of the fact that there needs to be a controlled border, 
what type of control should we have? Because if, mm. if we're going to have a different regulatory system and a different mm. system of tariffs on the two sides of the border, clearly they need to be some mm. form of border control. So what, how do you think that would work? Well, they, they don't, there doesn't have to be... There, there will obviously be two different regulatory regimes. The question is, how can that be done without affecting the border? Yes. That's the key. Yes. Now, if everybody rolled back from the, this, almost the, um, the creation of... Um, of, of, of almost like a toxicity of talking about the border mm. and people almost, oh, we can't touch the border, mm. we can't touch the border. And, and that's what has been created over mm. the past mm. few months. If we roll back from that, mm. maybe a bit late to do that now, but if we roll back from that, we then see with two different regulatory regimes, how can they be uh, constructed, whether it's at the point of, whether it's manufacturing or, or labelling or whatever, mm. uh, and at the point of delivery, mm. but not at the border. Mm. And that's that's it, it's devising but, that system. Yeah, but we haven't devised that system yet, have no, we? No, we haven't. No, that's right. And, and it could take some time to devise. It could. It, it could. But if everybody accepts the other concept mm. of and hard borders, a nonsense. It's simply a nonsense. It's, mm. it's a fabric of, of imagination. Therefore, we're in that limbo period mm. where this border concept, hard physical uh, installation ways, isn't going to happen. The other system in terms of what we need for a regulatory regime in the absence mm. of that also hasn't emerged yet. We have to operate between those two practical realities, one of which isn't going to happen and can't happen in the future, the other of which hasn't yet been developed mm. but undoubtedly will be developed, has to be developed just because of technology increasing. You, you say that, but most of the North-South, or a large proportion of North-South trade, is actually in agri-foods. And, and what you're talking about, I can see how that would work with manufacturing. Uh, for example, a lot of the manufacturing exports to GB from Northern Ireland. I don't show how that works with the agri-food sector, where there's you know, concerns about you know, uh, animal health controls, etc. Well... Uh, well, I mean, if uh, you've got a small number of people involved in there, it's a huge volume of trade, mm. but, but there are a small number of very, very large mm. companies involved in the agri-food sector. Uh, and uh, I would imagine, I'm not in the agri-food business, nor have I in-depth knowledge of it, but I would imagine it would be a fairly straightforward process to ensure that all of those in the agri-food side north of the border and those where the delivery mechanisms Mm. are south of the border come to a mutually agreeable arrangement about, uh, you know, the quality of food, what the processing, whether it meets EU regulations or if it's from Northern Ireland going somewhere else outside of the EU, that I, I would imagine, not being an expert on this, that that could be done without any need for somebody at the border to decide has this been done or has mm, it not been mm, done. Mm. Um, you know, as I say, I don't pretend to be an expert uh, in, in agri-food, but uh, in the absence of it being done at the border, which it isn't going mm, to be done, mm, mm. then they will have to devise a mechanism at the point of distribution uh, and, and the, wherever it's going to go, whether it's Dublin, Cork or Kinsale or wherever, um, the, they will have to devise a mechanism there. 
So assuming then we're going to go for that system, but it's not yet developed, what should there be in place during that interim until that new system's developed? Well, that, that's why our preference is for a deal, which allows us then to have an implementation period in the interim. So would if your prefer- a no deal wouldn't yeah, so would that your, unless would, that was negotiated. It, are you saying your preference would be to conclude the trade deal alongside the withdrawal agreement? Well, our view was that a trade deal should... I mean, this, this is a long-standing view. Our view was that... Our government shouldn't have agreed to the cart before the horse mm, process. Mm. Trade deals should have been getting negotiated Because in a way, that's the problem with the withdrawal it agreement. It is, it's what the inference is in terms of the future yeah, trade deal, isn't that, it? That's right. And, uh, you know, people keep saying the hard part's still to come because if we get over the interregnum now, we will then have quite a protracted process of negotiating the trade deals, which brings us back to where we thought we should be at the start and we think we've been proven correct. Trade deals should have been getting negotiated now and should have mm. almost been concluded now. Mm. Had they been started two years ago, we would have been very well down the road yeah. to a, hopefully a successful conclusion. And it's in both interests. Again, I come back to this issue of there's been an innate concentration on the Brexit effect within the UK as opposed to enough concentration on what the Brexit effect will be within the remaining EU countries. Mm. I think it is beginning to concentrate minds now as we get near the the 29th of March. But had that been the case over the course of the past 12, 15 months, I think we would have been further down this road than we are at the moment. And what do you expect ultimately the impact of Brexit to be? For For people in Northern Ireland and for people across the UK? uh, Economically, for example, and and socially as well. Well, I I think... The economic forecasters who made all their forecasts at the time of the referendum and have been proved subsequently wrong, I think will be proved as wrong again. Uh, you know, we were, we, there had to be an emergency budget, George Osborne told us. There wasn't. There was going to be an 18% fall in house prices. There isn't. Uh, John Major and Tony Blair came to where we are sitting now within a couple hundred yards of here to the Peace Bridge and told us the peace process is at risk if you vote to leave. We voted to leave, and it's not. So all those projections and mainstream media, the mainstream, the the sort of Europhile, FT, uh, big city, all those institutions have a love for sameness, similarity, Eurocentric approaches. They are fearful and petrified of a Brexit, because they don't want a liberated, emancipated uh, UK making its own decisions. It makes okay. life a bit you're, you're, more you're, difficult you're, to You're them. saying the Remain case was wrong, but what do you yeah. think will be the outcome from Brexit? I, I think longer term we will, uh, we will prosper. I don't think it's a magic wand, but I, I, think when, I, I think a lot depends on the next 12 to 18 months in the remaining EU states. I, set, I'm, I do not set myself up as some sort of crystal ball gazer or prophet. But the day after the referendum, I said on BBC Radio, when I was doing interviews for BBC Radio, uh, I said that there would be pretty significant change within the EU and there were a whole series of elections. Boy, did I underestimate that. I didn't foresee Italy going to the far right. I didn't foresee Wilders. I didn't foresee um, uh, Le Pen in France. Who foresaw Sweden? This is a massive anti-EU project that is dangerous because of its far right connotations, 
But if, uh, the UK is much better to be out from that rather than so, part of it. So what you're saying so, is by being outside the EU, we're protected from the turmoil within the EU. To some degree. And, yes. and also, what are you saying economically? That we'll have a resurgence within manufacturing because we're... I, I, don't, I don't think, as I say, it won't be a magic wand. I don't think there'll be a massive resurgence. I think the options and the possibilities are better outside the EU than they are inside because of the intrinsic nature of the EU. And, w- and what are those economic options you want to see us adopt as a result of being outside of the EU? Well, hopefully there, there will be free trade deals negotiated, but they, I, I, don't, I don't embrace the sort of far-right Tory um, sort of mantra that everything will be fine within six months and we'll be negotiating all these trade deals which will bring tens of thousands of jobs. I, I don't think that will be the case, but I think it allows us the freedom to develop our economy at a speed that we're comfortable with controlling immigration, which we want to control, bringing in uh, employees that we want to have that will add, will bring added value to our economy rather than just opening the floodgates. Uh, I think all of those things, provided we have a government in place that can allow for those so the sort of changing winds of, of economic difference that happens internationally, who knows what's happening post-Trump, that, but, but we can operate independently from the EU, and I think the degree of prosperity will be greater outside the EU than it would be inside. Gregor Campbell, MP, thank you very much indeed. That is the end of this special Hollywood Trust Brexit podcast. We will be back with our normal Brexit podcast in the last week of February. As usual, we thank the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland for its support for these podcasts. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages on Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust, and on Twitter, it's at Hollywell Team.